Hey everyone, this is Daniel from Pathways to Permanency, your host of Resource Families Thrive. And I am Amani Myers, and I am the Resource Family Approval Trainer Specialist. And Amani, how many episodes have you been on now? Is this number three? This is number three. I like it. Three times so, to try, right? Yeah, third times. Well, you know, I would I would go so far as to say first time is the charm, and this is just adding more. So welcome back. Thank you for being here. And today we are going to do Foster Care Awareness Month Part 2. As a reminder for everyone, please do like, comment, and share on any of our social media posts or anywhere you see the podcast so we can make sure to get this information out into the open. We want lots and lots of people to listen and lots and lots of people to learn. Um, just to give everyone a little bit of a heads up, we will be talking about some really important concepts today. We've brought them up before, including on these concepts of intersectionality, of racial disproportionality within the foster care system, um, and talking about some very specific instances of, of really sad outcomes that have come with that. Um, but more on that later. So for everyone that is new to listening to Resource Families Thrive, we always like to start off with an introduction to our organization. So Stanford Sierra Youth and Families is a merged organization with around 140 or 150 years of combined experience. Uh, we merged July 1st, 2019, and we provide a variety of services within our region that now encompasses 17 different counties. And every service that we provide, mental health, crime prevention, foster care, and more, are all dedicated to supporting our mission. And the mission is transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every child can thrive. Um, so Amani, as I mentioned already, we are gonna be talking about foster care awareness some more today as May is Foster Care Awareness Month. And you and I decided on a specific topic to discuss. Um, so, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce that for everybody? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, thank you again for allowing me to be here. I'm just so excited to be here with you today and to really talk about um, an important topic. And, um, you know, today we're going to be discussing, you know, the death um, and the life of Micaiah Bryant and, um, you know, her experience in the child welfare system and how that has um, not only impacted um, many people around the community and around the world, but also being able to sort of um, take it back a bit and um, sort of share a bit about my personal experience around um, this story and the intersections that sort of come with that. Yeah, thank you. I know that you and I, you know, in our, our conversations while we were talking about what what we should even talk about today and, and what was the most important thing for people to be aware of um, when Micaiah Bryant was killed, I know I told you, I couldn't help but think about all the clients that I've worked with. I was actually starting to repeat their names to myself that were her, that that were teenage girls of color in foster care, teenage boys of color in foster care. You know, I worked with Micaiah Bryant. Maybe I didn't work with her, but I worked with Micaiah Bryant's. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because um, as you say that you were sort of repeating the mantras back in your head um, and, you know, calling out the names, you know, I also couldn't help but, you know, think of my little sister who um, ended up passing away, as well as thinking about myself and my own 16-year-old self of, 
uh, growing up in the foster care system and seeing my story um, sort of be so similar um, to her own journey and recognizing that it's not even just about my own journey or my sister's journey, but every young person's journey um, of color who sort of walks through the doors of the foster care system, whether they, you know, age out, whether they get adopted, uh, whether they um, continue forward. And so I recognize, and what you've said is that you can see, you can see yourself, you can see, you can see almost, um, you know, the entire community that is mourning um, this loss of such a young, bright girl. And um, it's crazy too, to see that happen right at, right before the verdict of uh, George Floyd. And so for me, I think what was really difficult is that even though I know that the George Floyd um, verdict, you know, it brought some sort of relief. I knew that it's not sort of the entire picture, but to see that this young girl was shot and killed right before that, um, again, just re brings up and re-traumatizes um, this whole experience around what it means to be Black. There is a very large disproportionate population of kids of color within systems of care, within CPS investigations of their families. 51% of Black and African-American families having someone sitting in their living room at some point saying, we are going to determine if you can take care of your kids. And a disproportionate number of kids of color facing school suspensions and expulsions, leading to lower education outcomes, knowing that that connects to the school to prison pipeline, knowing that we have lower education outcomes for our kids in foster care, and that leads to the foster care to prison pipeline. What it all means is that kids like Micaiah Bryant, they have, they were, they were dealt a really bad hand. Most definitely. And I think that one of the things that sort of strikes me as you've shared some of those statistics is that in reading the article about Micaiah Bryan is that um, learning about that she was a good student, that she was well-liked, that she was a well-behaved student and that somehow she was triggered. And um, we talk a lot about how, you know, the brain impacts um, trauma. And to me, it just seems that there's such a huge disconnect between understanding that there are trauma responses and there are triggers that occur within our young people as they're still developing, but there isn't a lot of room for young people to make mistakes. There isn't a lot of room for young people to feel protected. Um, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of room for young people to also voice and explain sort of the things that are happening to them and for them to be listened to. Because um, the reality of for black children in the foster care system, so black children are also nearly twice as likely to be put into foster care as white children, as I mentioned. Um, they stay in foster care longer. They're less likely to be reunified with families or adopted. You know, the kids wanted to live with family. They wanted to be together and they wanted to live with family. You know, the, they, had con they had contact and connection with their mother that at one point they lived with their grandmother, but that was, they were told that was not sustainable. The living situation wasn't sustainable. And so the kids had to go back into foster care and then get separated 
you know, it really highlighted, you know, my own experience of growing up in the foster care system because Micaiah Bryant's story was very similar to mine in terms of, you know, being separated from my mother and being separated from my siblings and not necessarily knowing why. And it just really brought me back to the moment when her younger sister said, you know, we were put in separate rooms and she never got to see her after that. And um, I think the lack of transparency is what also sort of causes um, some of that rumination that can occur with the lack of understanding from a child's perspective as to what's happening. And so, you know, for me, that was just something that, you know, I had experienced. And I would say that it was very traumatic for me to be separated from my own siblings as they were protective factors for me in my life. They were my best friends. They were um, my siblings that I could count on. And so when you have that breakdown in relationship, even if the child welfare system attempts and thinks that they're doing the best thing, it really, for me, highlighted um, some of my own traumas that I experienced from that separation. And I really believe that it did lead me to act out in ways that I wasn't aware of. I remember being kicked out of an after-school program shortly after I had went into foster care. And um, I wasn't able to, again, fully explain what was going on. I didn't really know what was happening. I was 12 years old and, um, you know, you're growing, you're trying to figure out so many things. Not only was I separated from my mother, but I'm separated from my siblings. And so there's that compounded trauma and bringing myself back to the 16 year old me, I just remember standing in the hallway and being bullied and remembering how difficult that was to have someone scream at me over and over again, telling me that my mother didn't love me because I was in the foster care system. And I stood there and took it until I wasn't unable to take it anymore. And that was when she threw the pencil at my head, almost hitting me in the eye. And at that point, I lost it. And so at that moment, I ended up trying to go after her and an older teacher came after me and tried to separate us and was in between the both of us. And in that process of him trying to hold me back, he got injured in the process. And so the next day when I went to school, I was not only facing expulsion, but I was also facing criminal charges. I remember that being a really, really tough experience to sort of navigate through because I wasn't a violent individual. I wasn't someone that just reacted in those ways. I was quite the opposite. And um, I think about my cousin who had said to me, Amani, you were in between two extremes. Meaning that I was in between, I was the middle child and I had a younger sister who was independent. She was bossy, she was rebellious. She just liked to do things her way. And then I had a brother who sort of acted out his trauma with violence and being angry. And I was sort of the person that was the peacemaker. And so to see myself in this situation where it felt like I was sort of having an autobotic experience because again, I wasn't a violent individual. And I remember having to write a letter to this teacher because I really did not want to face charges. I was a junior in high school. 
I could not see myself going to jail. And I was completely thrown off by this whole experience. And it wasn't until a teacher came forward and advocated on my behalf because she knew the type of person that I was. I'm not saying that I was a good student, but I will say that I was not someone that um, was a fighter. I wasn't someone who was violent. And so that individual was able to see that I was being taunted. And because of that, that really helped um, sort of resolve some of the situation. I mean, I still had to attend um, an alternative school on the weekends. It, you had to go through metal detectors. I had never had to go through metal detectors like that before. Um, there were metal bars. And so it reminded me every single Saturday that I went that I was a bad child because of something that someone had done and I had responded into responded out of my own trauma and out of my own triggers. And so for me, it's like Micaiah Bryant didn't even get an opportunity, the fair opportunity that she deserved, you know? And when we talk about, again, understanding the impact of trauma in the brain, we talk about the developmental aspects, we talk about her life, she didn't get a chance. And there are a lot of kids just like her. Yeah. A lot of kids that that could have been. And I think that's, that's where the really heavy sadness kicked in for me. As I said before, I was just sitting there, you know, I, I saw this news story and I immediately started thinking this could have been this kid. This could have been that kid. These are, these are little developing humans that I know that had those reactivity issues that yes, had the cops called on them because of what people might refer to as meltdowns or outbursts that are trauma responses. Kids that I've had to de-escalate, you know, I have told people about one that came at me with a metal baseball bat once upon a time. And we were able to de-escalate that situation without any harm. We, we need to assess a child's trauma, their trauma responses. Imani, as you said, the way their brains have been impacted by this and learn how to support them through that. It is something that we can learn. Social workers, group home staff, treatment facility staff, we are able to do this. And I think the really big thing is, the message that I wanna convey is that it's just a matter of being taught the appropriate response, even to a really, really challenging situation at times. Yeah, I like that you said that. And, um, you know, it's one of the first things that we sort of learn in social work and in, in child welfare is de-escalation techniques and how to appropriately go about that and um, how we have been conditioned to understand and to know uh, trauma responses and to be able to use them in the way that makes, makes the most sense. And, um, you know, I just think about how oftentimes young people who have had many of these experiences where they've been triggered or they've been traumatized and, you know, one event can lead to another and it just, it's sort of like a volcano where you just sort of burst. And thinking back to my situation around that experience that happened to me in high school, 
you know, I, there were, again, there was adults that were around me that were able to advocate for me and they were able to speak to my character and to not have someone be able to speak to Makaya's character until after she's gone, you know, that's what really saddened me, you know, that she didn't get an opportunity to live out the full life that was in front of her. I've seen time and time again where we continue to blame the child. Mm -hmm. We continue to blame the birth families, but I don't always see the recognition. I don't always see the acknowledgement. I don't always see the accountability from the system's perspective of what could have been better. You know, our resource families, you know, they play a huge part in this. You know, you all are here to help nurture our young people and you know, we appreciate your efforts and we appreciate, you know, the hard work that sort of goes into it because I know many people who also come forward and have no idea about what a young person has gone through. They're still learning about the impacts of trauma. I think that as a society, we're really learning about the impacts of trauma and we're understanding all of those pieces. And so it's really about being in a place of learning and being in a place of understanding and also knowing that Things are a lot different today than they were in previous times, but there are still a lot of similarities that are still happening today that we still have to really work through and we have to break down and we have to address. And so I just really think that for me, you know, in, in honoring Makaya Bryant, because I think that it's also easy to just, you know, throw her name out there and throw her experience out there, but we really should use this as um, a lesson. We, we really should use this as a learning opportunity to really think about the gaps in the opportunities that can persist. You know, we don't want any of our young people to have to go through what Makaya Bryant and her family has sustained. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that if we can really draw people in in that way of understanding your role in providing that resource and being able to provide also, you know, I I can't imagine too if there was a connection between the bio mom and the foster mom. Can you imagine also too if there was, you know, some collaborative collaborative pieces or connection pieces around that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that we have to do better about working together. Yeah. And that's definitely a big push that I know at least our organization has has been really intent on is making sure that resource families and birth families or first families are working together mm-hmm. uh, because this is a collaborative effort. This is a co-parenting effort. It's yeah. not us versus them. It's not foster parents versus birth parents. It's all right, this kid's got a bunch of parents. That's, <laughs> yeah, like that's that. how I want people to think of it is we're all parenting. It takes and a village. It, it takes does. A village. It takes a community. And I think that what you say, one of the things that we really talk about, really what we hone in on, on training is that you are going to get tired of us because there's so many people that are surrounding you. We're all up in your business because it's not because we just want to be up in your business, but we really want you all to feel well supported and to know that as an agency, this is also what we do as an agency with our staff members is that we really work collaboratively. And so for our families is to know that, you know, 
for instance, you know, if you can't, if you can't fill this role or if you're having a, a, a tough time, hey, so-and-so can help you with this. You know, it's about bringing the brain power together to really help solve those challenges together as the mission statement um, really talks about. And so I like that you pointed that out. Um, something else that I'm, I'm working on for Foster Care Awareness Month comes back to the power of one caring adult. Yeah. That while it takes a village to raise a child at the same time, if nothing else, if they have one caring adult in their lives, but that makes all the difference. Yeah. And I think with Micaiah Bryant, we could see that she had caring adults that made it so that she loved school, that she was an honor student, that she, she was called a shy child in school and was always quiet. Um, but that she was at her core, a good kid. And that comes back to, again, there were caring adults that holds so much power. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that um, it's really important for, you know, everyone to understand that at the core of every young person, um, there's, there's goodness in them. They, they're good, they're whole. And, um, you know, I think that for me and knowing that someone saw that in me, I had an opportunity to talk with my high school principal, you know, about a year ago. And I asked her, what was it that she, you know, what made her believe in me? Because I was someone that just sort of went under the radar. And that's what she said. She said, Imani, I saw that you were a student that fell right under the radar. And, um, I saw that there was greatness in you. She saw the complexities. She saw the racial, she saw the historical narrative. She saw all of that. And because she saw all of that, she was in tune with all of that. She, she had me right under her wing and she's still in my life today. And um, I think that all of our young people deserve to have that at no, mat no matter what. And, and fortunately we are lucky enough to have that like I grew up with my family I've talked about that before I've never had child welfare involvement um, but you were talking about your principal um, we had stable connection we had an adult that we could identify that we could say this person is there is constant I am able to reach out to them I am able to contact them and I don't know I know Micaiah Bryant had connection to her grandmother, to her mother. Um, you know, I read about their FaceTime calls and pictures that would be sent back and forth, things like that. So there was connection there. There was caring adult there. Yeah, I totally agree, Daniel. And I think that what comes to mind for me is that it took a lot of adults to convince me that they were there, that they were going to be there. And so sometimes that's what it all, that's all it takes is reminding that young person every time you're in contact with them that you matter, that you're special. Despite what society may say, despite what statistics may say, despite what may, may your, your family may have said, despite what you may have said to yourself, you matter, you're special, and there's purpose for you in this life. Are there any resources out there that you would recommend so that people can learn more about, you know, just 
about what our kids need, about foster care, about you know, just all of this situation, all the stuff that's been going on. Yeah, what comes to mind is the book that uh, Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah just recently wrote, and it's called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And um, it was uh, published in April 2021, so it was published this year. And I think that it's a, a good starting point so that people have an understanding of really beginning to really understand um, our young people and what has happened to them. And so that it gives you, you know, a more of an understanding of how to sort of uh, just how to understand our youth better and not even just understanding our youth, but maybe understanding yourself as well. Um, we, we talk about that not infrequently in various trainings. And then in uh, a, a event that I just did last month, we specifically discussed, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happens to you. And thinking about that for our kids and their families too. Looking yeah. at generational trauma, generational foster care, all of those things. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. Um, and then I wanted to also mention the New York Times article that came out. You can find it um, just by looking up New York Times Micaiah Bryant. But the full title is Micaiah Bryant's Journey Through Foster Care Ended with an Officer's Bullet. And it really does talk about her life. It talks about who she was um, and, and her experiences in foster care that all culminated in that one tragic end. So in closing, Imani, with everything that we've talked about today in terms of Micaiah Bryant's life and how it relates back to the kids that we work with, and bringing it back around to foster care awareness, what would you say is, is the key takeaway that you want our potential resource families, our incoming or our current families to really think about that they should be aware of when it comes to kids like her, when it comes to young people like her? It's important to get to know them beyond their behavior. It's important to get to know them where they are at. And it's also important to get to know them so that you can see where they're going to go. And I would say it's, it's important to understand that, you know, with the statistics that we have, with the information we have with relation to, um, again, to racial disparities in the system, um, with all of the ways, all of these different things tie together, this, this concept again of intersectionality, how it ties into families, individual cultures, that you can't just look at one little aspect of a person, that you have to look at the entire person. And that for our young people, you have to look at where they've come from and who they're still connected to. Those bonds are so important that those relationships tie them together, that family is, is absolutely key in all of this, that working with family is key. I think that would be my big takeaway is, is build connections with the child's family. So Amani, thank you again. Uh, this one's a bit of a heavier topic. I really always appreciate you coming back. I look forward to the next one. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to everyone who's out there listening.
Yeah. And uh, for more information, please do remember to like, comment, and share on all of our podcast posts, our social media posts. Spread the word around people that they should give us a listen. Um, don't forget, you can also reach out to us via our website, ssyaf.org. You can give us a call at 916-368-5114. And until we talk to you again, keep on thriving.